Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by Drs. Ryan LaValle and Kalia Johnson, where sometimes it's about occupation and sometimes it's just sassy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Dr. Thoughts Podcast. It's everybody's favorite academic diva, Dr. Kalia Johnson, and I am here with everybody's favorite esthete, Dr. Ryan LaValle. Wait, what? <laughs> everybody's favorite esthete. So oh, esthete? Yes. A person I don't know who, what that word is. Well, it is a person who is an appreciator of arts and humanities. Oh, and that's very true. Yes. I looked this <laughs> up because we are joined today by... Dr. Susan, aka Sue Coppola, who is probably the pioneer of occupation and humanities in our discipline. So welcome to the podcast, Sue. Oh, thank you so much. It's so fun to be here with my hallway neighbors uh, who I don't see enough, even though we're right next door to each other. Yeah, yeah this is a very special moment because as you all know, um, Kalia and I's office are right next to each other, um, but Sue's is right next to Kalia's. So <laughs> we are a triple threat right now when it comes to the Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel the Hill. <laughs> <laughs> I love that chapel the hill yeah. yeah that was a weird thing that my mouth just did but we're gonna go with it <laughs> and I appreciate too that you called us a triple threat because uh I think we we keep it lit on this end of the hallway for sure. yes <laughs> north side is hot yeah yes, I love <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Sue, before we get into all of the deets of this episode, we have a tradition on the podcast where our guest host names themselves as a favorite. And so I'm going to ask you to name yourself a favorite. So you're everybody's favorite. What? I'd say connector. Mm. Um, yes. I say that in terms of having been in the field for a long time and field work coordinator for 25 years in OT, uh, you know, it's like connecting students to colleagues, uh, people with similar interests. I love to connect them. I love to connect in interdisciplinary ways so that we can do our best work. And I love teaching across the disciplines. Um, uh, and uh, we had a recent uh conversation with Rhiannon Giddens with our students mm -hmm. and uh, the amazing historian, musician, uh, spirit mentor. She um, and she said, there are no genres. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And so that's how I see it. There's, you know, the, these boundaries we see uh, are mistakes. Mm. Mistakes. I love that so much. Yeah. You're the great connector. And we're going to get into how you make those connections and in arts and humanities, but I'm sure, you know, you're, share some stories, some personal stories too, about how those connections have evolved over the years through the profession and your connection. One of the things that you didn't name is that you're a former delegate to the WFOT. And so those connections also happen um, in the international community um, across multiple disciplines as well. I have benefited greatly from the great connector 
Dr. Sue Coppola. <laughs> the great connector. Thank um, you. Sue, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your background, um, just so we have a sense of both your experience as a practitioner and educator and uh, researcher or otherwise in, in the occupational therapy profession. Yeah. Well, I started out in special ed and came to OT school wanting to work with small children. Nobody over six appealed to me. And then I moved into... <laughs> aging and uh, in my practice and just fell in love with it and realized all the beauty and connections of aging. Um, I worked for 11 years at Duke, uh, serving in all the different areas and as the director for six years of the clinical services there, and then uh, came to UNC and I've, uh, in 1996. So I've been here for 27 years, and I've kind of grown through these decades in my career of you know, being an administrator clinician to being, you know, kind of an academic and geriatric uh, gero uh, specialist and then kind of moved into international. And now uh, what I'm claiming in this decade is just this uh, feeling that we need humanities and arts in our practice and in our education to be fully who we can be. Yeah. And you're also a full professor here at UNC. Um, actually now, well, used to be the only one. <laughs> and now uh, we have one more, uh, but you were the full professor of our di division, which uh, for those of you who don't know, that's um, one of the ranks within the um, sort of, I guess it's not tenure, um, but it is, um, I guess, just ranks, faculty ranks. <laughs> and the most senior ranks. Um, yeah, the most senior rank yeah. uh, across the faculty. So we've we've been really um, valued and benefited from your continued presence in the division and mentorship. And I know that both Kalia and I have experienced that in many ways. Um, well, it goes both ways. The richness that the two of you have brought and the energy that is just like it palpable and radiating out. Uh, kind of keeping our claim at UNC on being uh, um, ahead, thinking forward, being very centered on justice, um, it, which really there were threads of that from the beginning. And, and now this has taken a very new and very important form to in inform OS and OT. Mm. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I do too. You all can put words to things that just every day sort of slay me. It's like, oh, yes, <laughs> that's the thing. That's the thing. I love yeah. that. Um, you you are, though, the the humanities girl in our, or woman, I guess I should say, um, in, in our realm. Um, and so what, what really, what sparked you in, in thinking about humanities and, and the importance of it within at least OT education or education in general? Yeah. Well, I remember a moment when I came into my house. I'd been working all day at Duke and it was, I think it was around 1991, 92. And there was an AJOT, American Journal of OT that had come in the mail. And I was so tired that I just sat down and started reading it. And sure enough, it was the, it was the um, journal that wrote about Madeline Fleming's um, uh, clinical reasoning study. And the section on narrative reasoning, just, I mean, I could not stand up. I mean, I just was so inspired and affirmed and, you know, 
could see forward to that. And and then, you know, as, as their work came out further, they their book came out and it started with uh, the problem that occupational therapy students are not educated in humanities and the liberal arts. We just go towards science and that to really understand other people's worlds and do the work that we really need to do, we need more of a humanities based education. So when I came to UNC in 96, I worked with Wendy Wood to develop some courses called the biomedical and phenomenological aspects of illness and disability. And we read narratives by John Hockenberry and John Callahan and Audre Lorde and Reynolds Price and Kay Redford Jamison as part of the class. And I was, as I read each one, I thought, this is so much more than learning about OT. It tells me everything I need to know to be a good OT, but it's it's the story. And so that moved me into more and more humanities-based you know, theater and uh, performing arts, and then the Ackland Art Museum, in which we could go and use art as a way of learning inquiry and ways of understanding observation from inference to understand the criticality of context to understand anything and to recognize that of all the people in the room who were standing there looking at a painting, everyone was seeing a different painting. Everyone was making different meanings of it and that we could honor and learn from each other's different ways of thinking. Now, to me, these are all the ingredients of what it takes to be a really good OT who works on a team, who has empathy, who can uh, can use an inquiry process that's not just embedded in what seems objective, but in this idea of human experience. So that led me to working with um, with the uh, uh, and, and, and involved in kind of starting this health humanities program here at UNC with Dr. Jane Thrailkill from English, Michelle Rivkin Fish from anthropology, other colleagues in medicine and and uh, and social uh, medicine, and uh, you know I was a, a small potatoes in that, but I I was brought into that conversation and it was really exciting, and it led me back to reading. Dewey again, which I had read in my education. And but also I realized that he he wrote about art. He wrote about art as experience, about art in doing. And I thought, occupational science, where mm -hmm. are aesthetics discussed in occupational science when maybe that's why we're here? I mean, maybe that's what we're about is moving toward beauty and what is beauty in the different people's ways okay i can go on a bit <laughs> i love that that is such a powerful story and i think it's a testament to your ability to to make those connections you know not just from a like i am interested in this because i like art standpoint but really approaching it from this you know conceptual very intellectual place making the connection from you know art to to occupation to the practice but i also can't imagine you know because i wasn't in ot school too much long after 96 that this was a very new thing to approach um, your program director with, or even to have those discussions amongst other practitioners. Like, what was the reception when they were like, you, you said to them, we're going to the Ackland 
Because I can imagine for the first time, people are like, girl, why? Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to begin by saying that I did get wonderful support from Dr. Virginia Dickey, Dr. Ruth Humphrey, and of course, Dr. Nancy Bagatelle, who used to be in a, a in the symphony in Santiago. So she gets music and art as, as part of experience. Um, so I, I had support. Um, uh, with among students, it's been varied. It has really been varied. Uh, some of them are very skeptical, and I can get the course of vows that said, you know, I'm we're supposed to be learning occupational therapy, and I'm saying, you know, you are learning occupational therapy, and this is how you can be a really good one <laughs> if you embrace learning and human experience more broadly. Um, and not just thinking about fixing problems, but understanding what is beautiful to people and think my practice is to make this person move toward what is beautiful, whether it's their dress, the aesthetics of their dress, of being around people who bring them joy, who, you know, who arrange their environment in ways that please them, that have, you know, feng shui or whatever it is that is kind of, you know, it, it penetrates your body. We know that we are embodied. We are part of our environments. And so thinking about aesthetics when we install grab bars, uh, you know, thinking about what color somebody wants of their walker, all these things that we would think of, like, I don't want to wear, I don't want to wear a bright purple, you know, splint, <laughs> you know, and so we, we but if we just take a moment and say, what would I want to be asked in this moment that is about the aesthetics of whatever whatever this OT is doing or wanting me to do, uh, then I think we're going to kind of move a little bit more toward working with people's inner motivations than this kind of model of cooperating. You know, got to get people to come around, got to get them to cooperate. Why don't we understand what is beautiful to a person? And what is beautiful in being a therapist? Anyway, okay, you got me way off. I have oh, you're taking us to church, Sue. I'm really feeling so much joy in listening to you talk about this. And I actually don't know that I've ever really sat down and had this in depth of a conversation about it with you. And I think you really have a, a gift for connecting it, but also really lighting us on fire about it in a way that makes sense. You know, it's not just like, enjoy art art is important to society but really sort of contextualizing how this experience of art can actually be translated into implementable ways that um, any sort of practitioner can really think about it integrating with the way they go about engaging with people and also like humanizing people not just as like cogs in this machine of mm -hmm. clinical practice but people who are experiencing um, that that space and those different um, interactions socially environmentally um, and I will say as a, a fellow Dewey lover and scholar, um, I read a lot of Dewey and I didn't read Art as Experience first, but highly recommend the first chapter of Art as Experience as a really powerful intro into thinking about all of this and Dewey in general. Um, I was like, wow, if I had read this, I feel like I would have gotten like 14 of the other articles that we read a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm certainly thinking about my own teaching about occupation um, 
in the occupational science course in the master's program, uh, which I'll drop this hint for you now, Ryan, since you'll be taking that course back over, um, that there's there's a an aesthetics module that is a part mm. of that. Um, that while we're also talking about culture, right, that we that we talk about aesthetics as well and understanding what is um, what is meaningful and important to people from that standpoint mm. as well um and for, and for the doctoral students you know understanding what that means towards a study of science and a philosophy of science as well uh, yeah just i i really appreciate this framing because it is helping me also understand how do i see pedagogy in that way and teaching students about this and where sort of my own instructional gaps have been um and it's and aesthetics is such a critical I think point of this that we haven't explored enough. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and this idea of humanities, I mean, there's so many forms that it can take. You know, we think about, you know, arts and humanities of OTs in the arts and crafts era. We think about, um, about art occupations, you know, and things that, you know, people do music and that sort of thing. Um, and then we, and also we think about the art of doing the art of therapy and, you know, what that is kind of performance-based art, um, which Dewey wrote about, you know, he wrote about the art of doing and also the art that's embedded in objects that were constructed out of meaning. Um, and then there's, there's art pedagogy, the art, it's art-based pedagogies, which have a particular form. Um, so there, there's so many ways that dimensions of occupation and therapy uh that we can like pause and say where is where is the art artistry where is the um humanity you know it is about human experience which is you know it, it's just been dropped out of the curricula um and you know over the years as we've gotten more science-based and even betty yerksa wrote about how we've got to keep occupational therapy at the baccalaureate level. That was 50 years ago because of the liberal arts education that students need mm. in order to be capable of reasoning. I mean, otherwise it is a training program. It is not a, it is not an education. Um, and Suzanne Peliquin took that much further with regard to um, this idea of confluent education and embedding art in education and Kinsella, you know, has embedded more, more learning morality uh, and uh, exploring ethics and morality through art. Uh, there are just a lot of people who've done uh, if we, we have to look for it, but it's all there. And, uh, and I had a, a study done with Adrian Miao and our Ackland Art Museum folks that, um, that explored the impact of uh, art module and OT education that was published about uh, five years ago in the uh, OET, Open Journal of OT. I think one thing um, that you're sort of speaking to, and just so that our listeners can get a full and comprehensive understanding of like what humanities entails and, and also this idea of aesthetic, 
Um, it's not just the visual aesthetic, you know, I think that's the one we often go to, but it's the feeling, it's the sense, it's the experience of like the art or the performance. It's, it's the air in the room as well as the sound and the, the visual, you know, it's sort of that full comprehensive sensory experience of the art um, and how it is engaging with someone um, which to me is like it sounds like activity analysis in a certain way like really understanding how all these different components of someone's environment are influencing them and how the systems and their experiences and even their own sensory systems are um, sort of connecting with the aesthetic of of the experience they're having they're having um, in in the process of whatever you're trying to work with them on. <laughs> you know, and that comes out in, in when people look at sensory processing experiences, and even Winnie Dunn has kind of touched upon this idea in her work on sensory processing. Uh, this as the idea of aesthetics, and so when we think of children who have modulation problems and that sort of thing, if we think of it and not as like, we're just trying to control their nervous system, but like, what is pleasure? What is beauty for them? What is, what is an aesthetic experience for them? Um, and so what do you say to the people who are like, oh, this is just a bunch of hokey hippie stuff? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, and that's, that's, uh, that comes up a lot, but it, it's sort of um, like when people say hokey, uh, it stuff, I'm like, well, what, what is, what do you think is beautiful in your life? And they'll say, oh, you know, my grandchildren or, you know, uh, my tattoos, my this, my that. And it's kind of like, we, we need to kind of move this forward. You know, even in John Dewey's era, there was this, one of the things he spoke out about was this problem of people thinking of art as existing in museums of art as high art. And, you know, instead, if we think, okay, you know, let me look at this culture of people who we would call impoverished, you know, economically, look at the, look at the selection of the fabrics that they wear. Look at how they, they interact with their child artfully. Look at, you know, see the, the art of um, how they manage. Um, and then I think, you can find it. I mean, even at a, one of the OS conferences, I was talking about humanities and someone said, oh, these young people, our students don't care about art. And I'm like, are you kidding me? They are, <laughs> listen to the music that they're, the poetry that they are listening to, slam poetry, hip hop, you know, whatever it is, um, it is the art of the moment. It's art embedded in experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, art. Yes. Art embedded in experience. And it's unfortunate in that comment that that was sort of missed because, you know, we, art is also expressed like through our identities. It's how our students show up in the class. Like we as educators experience that, ex that art exchange through the relationships we cultivate and, and, and how we instruct uh, yeah. as, as well. And this yeah, really, teaching is a performance, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Whole yeah. front stage and backstage for those who read or Rothman, yeah. you know, <laughs> while we're yeah. on the subject of theorists. But um, that is, wow, like you, my, 
the synapses are firing at like a, a million miles an hour right now um, and, and how we're having this discussion. Um, so Can how we- Oh. I, I'm sorry, but before you, I'm going to ask this question and then and punt it over to you um, for, for yours as well to, to be thinking about. Um, since we have been referencing as students in the classroom experience, like, could you provide for our listeners some examples of what, mm-hmm. um, like, a humanities-based teaching experience might be like? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'll I'll give example from dance. Um, We had a group called Culture Mill out of a nearby town called Saxpaha. And they have a program of moving through for people with Parkinson's. So they came and we rented some space, got some space uh, in on the university and they came and did a movement experience with our students and people with Parkinson's. And the philosophy behind their, uh, their work is that the way to, that we have to attend to how people experience movement and to recognize the concept of innovation, that every, every action that we make is an innovation. And so by building through dance movements, which is all innovation, unless you're doing some kind of rope dance, um, you kind of learn your body in ways that you can do things that you maybe didn't think you could do. And they do things like befriending the floor and they use dance and and fall on the floor so that so that, you know, the fear of falling becomes something that is part of a movement experience in which you, you know, you're, you you engage with what is happening and you then learn how you're going to get back up again. But it, it takes a, a different method than kind of the LSVT big where, you know, you work on kind of rote working on big movements, but instead on experiencing that innovation and, um, and connecting with other people through movement. And of course, using music as part of the experience that you kind of get in rhythm with uh, music that helps you move in different ways. I mean, these are some things related to Parkinson's. Um, we've had uh, older dancers who have done workshops, Alvin Ailey's uh, workshop, Hope, uh, oh, I forget her last name, um, who was a, a recently retired performer with um, Alvin Ailey, did uh, workshops with our students some years Um and, um, you know, talked about aging, being an aging dancer, someone with arthritis who has put on what people think are, you know, pounds of, of, um, of age that are problematic, but really are very beautiful. And um, the students wrote about doing the workshop and then watching this woman perform with Alvin Ailey. And she, we knew about her, all of her arthritis and how she adjusted and the one of the quotes from the students was like looking up at this dancer brought tears to my eyes it was so beautiful and what if we thought about working with older adults as being so beautiful what they're how they're moving how they're adjusting um so uh, those are some examples um Gosh, there have been so many. We we have one uh, person who comes who writes about scars, and she has students have discourse about 
body scars that they have and what they mean and how they help us transition through life, kind of carrying memories. Um, and then, of course, we think of emotional scars, but looking at physical star scars as a starting place can really launch one into, um, you know, kind of understanding markers, sent sent sentinel experiences, reminders. Um, I'm very long-winded. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's, I think it's, um, it's really helpful to hear you talk through how these things are connected and then also how students are processing them. Cause I think there's just a lot of people out there who will say, yeah, we could have our students out and dancing, but like, what are the skills they're developing? Like, what are the things that they are pulling with them and carrying forward into their, their practice of being a, an occupational therapy practitioner? Um, and so it's really nice to hear some of those threads as you you weave them to get into art um, together uh, with the practice in a lot of ways. Is there a particular um, piece of a work or art or performance that has really just like captured you over the years in in your sort of using of art that you just always go back to or that has really been like a mainstay because of how it has impacted students or you as a as a professor trying to do this work? Yes. There is a work of art that I now have a copy of in my home and it's called Mending Socks. It's from about 1924 and it was it was a work of art by the artist Archibald Motley and it was of his grandmother. And uh, the image is of an African-American woman, a black woman seated in a chair. She looks quite elderly and she is mending socks on her lap. And around her are various artifacts, um, things like um, uh, uh, books and glasses and fruit. And then a partial image of a woman who is... Um, uh, a, a white woman with, you know, kind of fancy curls that is a painting on the wall beside her. There's, a, there's so much to this painting. And every time we look at it and explore it with students, there's something new that a student discovers that I haven't seen, even though I've looked at it hundreds of times. Often Carolyn Almendinger from the Ackland Art Museum kind of leads a discussion with the students on it, but I have done so too in, in an effort when she's not available. But um, by looking at the objects, we kind of go through an interpretive process of seeing what's there and gradually unfolding the situation in as um, a very full moment that tells the story of this woman who grew up in slavery and has an image of the woman who owned her. And, um, and then the things that happened in her life, religious ornaments, the the fruits the her working and you know it's just amazing the interpretations that students have on this but you know as we as the story unfolds the we learn that Archibald Motley asked his grandmother what would you like in this painting and um and and it was all kind of placed by her um, and so we we can kind of get into depth of exploring thinking about what it's like what if we were doing a home visit for this woman. Like, what would we pay attention to? What would we assume? What would we ask her? You know, what would we, you know, interpret? Um, how would we be? How would we enter a conversation with her? 
so you know it, it, it's just a painting that I think is just so beautiful and rich that we've used over and over again um I love that and he, it it made you say something that I think is a really powerful phrase where you said a full moment um, and, and I think that that's something that we, we really try and teach through occupational science and sort of the way that many of us, not just in our division, but, you know, across OT who are trying to help our students get the depth of their, the, the experience and moment that is happening when you, you are engaging with a client in their home, in the hospital, wherever, but like that full moment is always there, but it takes some energy and time for you to take notice and be a noticer of those objects, of those meanings, of those histories that are sort of flowing into that full moment. Um, so I love the idea of a full moment um, because it's like every, every moment is full, but we forget um, and we need to sort of pour it out in front of us to understand um, all those different layers um, and things that are going on in practice. There's sort of a belief that social sciences will tell us those things, right? That, you know, these studies and, you know, now what was originally a humanities-based approach, which was a narrative analysis, has now moved into the social sciences as, as one form of qualitative uh, research. But there's still something missing, as 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 uh, Neil Hurwitz says, um, uh, that humanities are a sharper instrument to understand human experience. And I do think that even as many things get pulled from humanities into social sciences of methodologies, there will always be the things you cannot put to words that are that our clients when in OT cannot put to words. Ste Stefan Josephson has, you know, his, his work in theater and music and that sort of thing really kind of captures this concept that there are things that cannot be put to words. And speaking of um, Stefan, um, you know, even how he presented the Ruth Simke lecture in occupational science. Anybody wants to check it out, I do believe it's on the SSO YouTube channel. Um, even how it's presented, right? Um, how we how is we talk about experience um, was something that was completely different. I mean, to include song, to include picture, um, in addition to the spoken word, the, the scientific word at that. Mm -hmm. Um, to have this full moment of experience to understand the content of the actual lecture. Um, I think that's just such a, a great example um, too for even in the, the uh, research world of how these things intersect and, and create this experience that is really, really beautiful and powerful um, um, as well. But um, you know, but you'll continue to have the the naysayers, right? Oh <laughs> yes, I heard that there is a there's not a real place or even sort of epistemic alignment for humanities and for science. And, mm. and to those people, what do you say? <laughs> mm. Um. Well, I I would ask questions, um, because I think that people don't realize their lives as being imbued with humanities. 
um, the story of how your day went, the the um, the music that you listen to when you go to the gym, the 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 things that bring you into the moment, like Stefan's uh, piece with his wife Mary was an experience, which is what John Dewey talks about. It was an experience. It wasn't, you know, some kind of cognitive thing that was just happening, uh, you know, with your, you know, thinking neurons. I mean, we don't, we know it's all embodied, but, but I would kind of explore that people, you know, uh, explore this in people, you know, like, why did you choose to wear that today? Mm. What, you know, why why this cologne why this perfume what earrings you know i think that it's a matter of noticing and when we notice things about our clients we build relationships around those noticings like oh i noticed this picture i noticed you know mm, you know it's just to me there's just it's just screaming everywhere i look <laughs> and what happens i think in clinical practice is that we turn off all the noticing um, and we kind of go, we have an agenda and we're not in the moment and we're after something and we either find it or we don't. And it's just, it's, it is, it's a dance. It's a, it's an improvisation and we need to acknowledge that. Um, I think it speaks to though, like, you know, the, when we're thinking about more clinical spaces in the sense of like biomedically based spaces, um, we see a lot more quote unquote sort of sterilization of those like scrubs, for example, or uh, hospital gowns, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think we also forget that that is an aesthetic as well. Like we want to believe much like in like certain research, like this is objective, this is neutral. Like a hospital gown is just a neutral experience because it's so rote and part of the, the machine of a hospital. But in reality, it is also an experience. It's it's how someone is moving through that world. And you walking in in scrubs is an aesthetic that also that that whole aesthetic of sterilization is felt yeah. in a specific way um, by the people who are engaging with it. So I think there's like this false assumption of, of neutrality um, mm -hmm. because we have um, created an assembly line or sort of these um, containers through which we sort of push people through. And humanities breaks that. It sort of challenges us to go slower and to notice and to not rely so much on those um, rote ways of experiencing the process. Yeah, that that um, dominant epistemology that... Suzanne Pelliquin wrote about, Yerksa wrote about, Kinsella wrote about, um, you know, it really is, it strips identities from people. And that makes it a very safe space for physicians who mm. want to, uh, you know, kind of clean out and have this way of thinking where they take the information about what's happening in the body and narrow it down to the diagnosis and it's just a deductive process and you win when you hit that diagnosis. And if it does, if what that people hear doesn't fit, then, you know, the patient's bad. In OT and <laughs> OS, we, we start with the person and we build outward. We kind of grow that understanding of their identity. And that kind of inductive process 
is a threat in these biomedical contexts. Uh, and so individual differences are a threat. Diversity is a threat. Um, you know, it's all, um, it's just such a, a divergent way of thinking that, um, or abductive way, <laughs> anyway, that, that then, um, you know, creates a lot of moral distress for clinicians. I mean, the underground practice, all these things are built around the fundamental problem that, you know, as you mentioned, Ryan, the sterilization, the homogenization, the standardization of everything uh, that, you know, is, is funded in, and I use the word funded thoughtfully as, you know, a capitalist way of thinking about what we're doing. And cultures that are not driven on capitalism are very confused by us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thinking about the, the future of sort of like education and occupational science and occupational therapy, or I guess I should just say occupational therapy, ACOAT standards are now on my mind <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of what we're, what we're bringing into the classroom and incorporating humanity specifically. Like what, either tips you have or visions that you have for really either in a standardized way or at least systematic way um, incorporating um, the humanities into um, occupational therapy education. Well, um, uh, this is a point that's been kind of on my mind for a lot of years, and that is you know, the stunning absence of humanities in the ACOAT standards. And if we are trying to teach people to understand human experience, human behavior, and form relationships, it's starkly missing. And um, I would love to see it more explicitly written. Currently, it says something like, students will have had a liberal arts base, baccalaureate base. That that means very little these days because we've got these different uh, different bodies that accredit academic yeah. programs that we've been learning about. And so, you know, for some, it's it could be one course in the humanities and you can get a baccalaureate degree because of the, you know, the way that operates. But I would like to see it written in. I mean, they do have words about narrative in there or stories, but, yeah. um, but and there's, I don't think there's, I don't think their courage is out there for it yet and but secondly i don't think we've done the the research and i really need to publish a piece that i i did a qualitative study of the of the responses of students when asked what were the distinct benefits of humanities to your uh in in your learning about practice with older adults and they said you know it really made me think more holistically about people it made me feel that i could become intimate in in connections and form a a relationship that i could i could reflect on myself i could be reflexive and that i could think about aesthetics and those five different things are to me are just fundamental qualities of a good therapist but um, but but I think we need the research out there to verify it and um, and um, a reclaiming of occupational therapy as being about well-being for people we serve and um, and less about how do we get paid. Um, 
Mm. But I do think that it is equally valuable in occupational science. I mean, there's plenty of studies about theater, dance, poetry, uh, other forms, music, uh, but we haven't pulled it together to think about it as a whole, as humanities and aesthetics, as embedded in every occupation. Well, sounds like you just outlined your a theoretical paper for Journal of Occupational Science. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, Sue, though, you, you mentioned it takes courage. Um, and I, I want, I would wonder if you might unpack that a little bit. Like, why do you think it takes so much courage to, mm -hmm. to put that into a code standards or what's preventing people? What's scaring people, um, from doing that? Um, well, it has taken me courage to embed humanities in my class and feel, you know, legitimate, you know, because, you know, many students want to learn to become an OT. And so it's kind of, I've been pushing the edge each year a little bit further down the road. So my own experience, I know it takes courage. Um, the second thing is that I think that OTs feel like, you know, stepsisters in many arenas of care, whether it's school systems or hospitals. And I think um, it's dangerous to talk about something that's considered soft, that's considered fluff, that, that is not quantitatively measurable. And so it, it takes courage to stand by the story and stand by not just what we collect in our assessments, but what we notice and describe what we notice when, when, um, when people are having a good moment, when they're having a good therapeutic experience, when they're successful, that they're smiling, that they're, you know, that gets a little bit more into, like to talk about the human experience. Again, it's that underground practice that was uh, uh, outlined in the early nineties by Mattingly and Fleming, that what, what matters is not what we write about and talk about in formal settings. Hmm. Um, so I think it takes courage. And then for ACOAT, you know, people have been cultured to want to talk about FIM scores and functional outcomes that are devoid of the person's identity and what it means to them. Yeah, thank you for, for unpacking that. And so as we sort of near the, the end of our conversation here, do you have any sort of like final thoughts uh, just about humanities in general in relation to occupation mm -hmm. uh, or, or like to share sort of what's next for you. We've already tasked you now with this theoretical paper on top of the other paper you're going to publish. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think the one thing that I would add that I'd like to emphasize is how this is that humanities are a way forward for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and justice, mm. because it's embedded in culture. And for us to understand across cultures, we need arts and humanities um, understandings and ways to learn and approach them. Um, and, and then I think it will create a situation where we can honor diversity a little better. Now, Sue, 
that's about the start of another conversation. <laughs> I'm like, oh, now you, you did something there, but it just means that we have to um, have you back on for a part two of the podcast. <laughs> I really, love it. really appreciate um, that final thought and thinking about how this also is a mechanism for us to continue um, the work uh, related to diversity, equity, inclusion, um, justice, and accessibility as well, too, mm -hmm. I guess. But thank you again for coming on the podcast and really imparting some deep conversation that has, I think, really sparked some, some fires related to how we are um, thinking about, about arts and aesthetics across our teaching, cultivating relationships with students, how we understand and do our science, um, but also how we do our practice. And so I hope that um, our listeners will um, really digest and process this and think about ways that they can take it up in their own um, practice as well. Um, and if people would like to reach out to you to talk about it a little bit further, where can they reach you? Oh, I'd be happy to get an email. I, you can find me online, but I'm S-C-O-P-P-O-L-A at med.unc.edu. And I just want to say that um, I really appreciate, in this conversation as well as many others, um, you set a tone of intentionality um, and also passion, but also your pace is much slower than um, in like a really purposeful way. Um, I think you're very thoughtful and it, it has even influenced sort of even how we're talking today. Um, and I've always appreciated that about you and sort of like it's fun, it's passionate, but it's also important. And you you pace yourself in the way that you present these ideas um, in a really intentional way that I think has um, set a tone for me and, and also is like a model because sometimes I get so fast, blah, 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 you know, um, <laughs> and and it's just so wonderful to see someone who has taken the many experiences that you've had across many different disciplines and fields and is able to just like slowly and clearly give them to someone else with a lot of passion. Um, and I hope to be like that one day. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan and Clea, it means so much to me to hear that from you. And uh, it's such an honor to be part of your program, your, your this program and, and your lives. Um, it's it's truly an honor. Uh, I'm learning that the learning is always. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sue, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Dr. Thoughts. And until next time, y'all keep thoughting. <laughs>